0: ted audio collective got a business problem there's a ted talk for that stay updated on everything business on ted business a podcast hosted by columbia business school professor modupe akinola every week she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work answering questions like how do four-day work weeks work Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been more than two years since offices shut down, many people were sent home, and meetings turned into video calls. And now leaders want people back to the office. But many people have mixed feelings about that.
1: What do I think about going back to the office? The poop emoji says it all.
2: I feel like going back to the office is fun to see your co-workers, maybe once a quarter for any planning sessions, but it's not necessary every week.
3: Ew, office stinks. I'll never go back to the office, ever. Not even with a race. Actually, we should get a race to stay home.
1: I'm really maybe going to work once a week, which is fun, I get to see people, but I still want to definitely keep that leverage and um, be able to work from home more often than not.
3: Oh, hell no. Why would I do that? Working from home has kept me from being around hella toxic people at the office. And to be quite honest, my mental health is doing better now that I'm not around my colleagues. So leave me at home.
0: Hybrid work is becoming the norm. Except right now, no one knows what normal hybrid work looks like. It's the Wild West. Kind of like when we first got on Zoom in 2020 with organizations charging straight into it without any road signs or directions. But if we want to make hybrid work work, the evidence is clear that we need to draw a map. I'm Adam Grant, and this is Work Life, my podcast with the TED Audio Collective. I'm an organizational psychologist. I study how to make work not suck. In this show, I take you inside the minds of fascinating people, to help us rethink how we work, lead, and live. Today, going back to the office and how to make a hybrid model work. Thanks to ServiceNow for sponsoring this episode.
2: So just to be very clear, in the US and most of Northern Europe, roughly 50% of people cannot work from home. So that's frontline, retail, manufacturing, think no, you know, a lot of essential services, nurses, police, fire. The other 50% of us can, the large majority will be hybrid. Nick
0: Bloom is a Stanford economist, and he's the ultimate source of data on remote and hybrid work.
2: I actually started working on this in 2004, and I've been interviewing folks that have been doing this for a long time. And you go back to the 80s, and it was truly horrible. I was talking to someone, and she said, look, the way it used to operate when I was back in the 80s is my boss would drop off a huge pile of paper on my front doorstep and uh, I'd have to process it and work through it. You know, it's before <laughs> we had computers and then I'd have to, you know, at the end of the day or the next day, drive it into the office.
0: Well, it, the, the 80s version sounds terrible, except I want the boss who does home delivery.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was impressed that she said she managed to get a boss. Her boss did one drop. Some leaders have
0: long resisted the idea of letting people do some of their work remotely. But back in 2010, Nick led a landmark experiment showing that when people were randomly assigned to work entirely from home, they were 13% more productive. They took fewer breaks and shorter breaks. They were also half as likely to quit. Fast forward to March, 2020, COVID hit and the whole world became a research lab for Nick and his colleagues they started collecting a lot of data across jobs, industries,
2: and levels. We've been surveying 5,000 Americans a month since the beginning of the pandemic. And you can see there's been a sharp break in terms of how positive people are on work from home. So overwhelming majority, more than 80%, say it's turned out much better than they thought. And the big upside of that is the average American Spend 70 minutes each day. They go to work and back, which is 60 minutes from commute. Typically, we commute 30 minutes each way, but there's an extra 10 minutes as well. It takes longer to get ready. So, if you survey people they you know they basically spend a lot more time shaving, putting on makeup, you know, getting getting kind of polished when they go to work. So, you're saving your employees 70 minutes a day. It turns out roughly 30 of those 70 minutes people save they work more on the, for the job. So, if you're an employer. Each day your employee works from home, they're putting in about 30 more minutes.
0: I loved your finding about the time saved around not commuting, right? I I remember reading this and thinking, whoa, wait a minute, economists have discovered a way to get an extra hour in your day. Just work from home, right? (laughs) Good for organizations and for humans. (laughs) Nick, are you saying that hybrid is the future?
2: Hybrid, yeah, hybrid is definitely the future. The future is starting now. We're in this return to the office moment over, you know, summer 2022. But some people,
0: mostly CEOs and senior executives, are still resisting the idea. Here's an email I got from a very senior, highly accomplished leader in the tech industry who's responsible for a bunch of products that you probably use every week. I remain adamant
1: that any engineering and product development team that I manage maximize time together in the office. Five days per week, plus weekends. I remain highly skeptical that the kind of engines of growth, development, and innovation that
0: drive Silicon Valley startups and mid-sized companies can be handled through hybrid work. I want my engineering and product teams at the office with
2: me. I'm like stunned into silence. It's like being read uh, an email from a flat earther that's trying to argue (laughs) with you that, you know, the earth is flat. It really isn't round and, you know. Actually, Elvis is standing on one side and he's still alive. <laughs> the evidence I have on this right now is so relevant to this. So I did one randomized control trial in a big Chinese multinational, Trip.com, which is a you know, NASDAQ-listed massive 30,000-person company, and they agreed to do a randomized control trial for engineers, marketing and finance professionals, for so 1,600 of them over the second half of last year. So what they did is they took 1,600 people, and if you have an odd Birthday, so If you're born on the first, the third, the fifth, seventh of the month, etc., you got to work from home on Wednesday and Friday. And you have an even birthday—the second, fourth, six, eighth—you stayed in the office five days a week. So this is like exactly testing the email from your uh, tech exec. And they tracked these folks for six months. And what did they find? The people who worked from home two days a week
0: were every bit as effective. They performed just as well, and they were just as
2: likely to get promoted. So there's no difference. But quit rates were down 35% amongst the work-from-home employees. Measures of job satisfaction, burnout, work-life balance are all massively better. And the firm said, look, this is incredibly positive, so much so we're just going to roll it out to the whole company. In March 2022,
0: Trip.com rolled out working from home two days a week for the entire company.
2: And I know from talking to folks in China, there are other tech companies now thinking of copying them because the... Evidence is so strongly in favor of it. So how many days should you be
0: on-site versus remote? It depends on how interdependent people are. In my world of organizational psychology, there are three kinds of interdependence, and they map perfectly onto individual sport, relay sport, and team sport. I'm normally skeptical of sports metaphors at work. In your job, when was the last time you agreed exactly on how to keep score, and then hired referees to enforce the rules? but this one actually works. If your workplace is full of people playing an individual sport, like gymnastics, you can be remote first. Think call center reps and accountants, for example. Let everyone divide and conquer their own beam, vault, and floor routines whenever they want, and the whole will be roughly the sum of the parts. If your projects are more like a relay race, though, you need more time together. Like on an assembly line at a carpentry shop or in a media company where drafts are handed off from a writer to an editor to a designer. The person passing the baton needs to be in sync with the person receiving it. Where you need the most time together is when you're playing a true team sport like soccer. Think of a research and design lab or a consulting team. When excellence depends on repeatedly passing the ball back and forth, you really
2: want to spend several days a week together. As an example, is you know we're going to be in the office Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and work from home Wednesday, Friday. And the, the plan is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, like exhaustingly social days. We're going to have all our meetings, presentations, client events, trainings, lunches on those three days. Try and get in all that face-to-face time that used to be spread over five days into those three days. Then the other two days, Wednesday, Friday, is home time for time for kind of quiet work, deep work, maybe one-on-ones because they're fine over Zoom but they're not gonna be days for big meetings. A company which is structured like a soccer team can go with your
0: three-two model. Three days at the office, two days at home, and do it successfully. But Nick, I noticed that one of your findings with that model is that people were more likely to send
2: emails and Slack messages on nights and weekends. What's going on there? I think you're exactly right. So initially you think, well, look, this is really bad. Ah, you know, as exactly as you say, they're struggling to set boundaries. I think when I look at the data of rule, it's worth noting two other things. One is we asked them about work-life balance, burnout, and a few questions. The folks that get to work from home are much more positive on this. What I think this tells us is you know, that on the days they work from home, we know they work quite a lot less, actually, to put numbers on it. On the two days they work from home, Wednesday, Friday, they're working about three hours less out of an eight-hour day. So that's a lot. And they're roughly making up that time on the other days, the week, and the weekend.
0: Overall, Nick's evidence shows that hybrid work is good for satisfaction, retention, and work-life balance, as well as fewer sick days, and doesn't have costs for performance or promotions. This might be why the majority of offices are going forward with a hybrid work policy, typically three days at the office, two days from home. But don't get ahead of yourself and assume that you can hit play and just loop that song forever. This is the time to
2: test and learn. I'm aligned with you, Adam, on very much suggesting firms are thoughtful, collect data, and evaluate what's going on. So companies should basically be looking at the hours, assessing what people are doing, surveying their employees anonymously, regularly, and checking that working from home is working for them, and it's not leading to some kind of nasty burnout because managers are pushing more work onto them.
0: So if you decide to test a three-two model, the
2: big question is whether we should all show up on the same three days. The main struggle I hear managers tell me about is this paradox of choice versus coordination. So they'll say, you know, my employees, they really want to choose which days they want to work from home. The problem is hybrid to work. You do need to coordinate on the days of the week you're in and then the days of the week you're at home. And once you get that fixed up and people accept it and you move ahead, then I think hybrid works well. If hybrid means everyone can work
0: from home whenever they want, proximity bias is a problem managers reward the people they interact with in person the coordinated approach having everyone in the office on the same days can solve the fairness problem that might leave some groups
2: at a disadvantage so imagine you're apple and you've agreed to work from home wednesday friday and suddenly tim cook says who's their ceo you know what i really like being in the office i'm going to start coming in on wednesday friday so Tim starts coming in on Wednesday, Friday. Of course, people that work for him may also start coming in Wednesday, Friday. Then what you'll find, and we've seen in the data, is some folks will come in and some folks will be less happy coming in. They find the workplace less congenial. They have constraints. If you look across large samples, it tends to be people with young kids, folks that are disabled, live a long way from the office, that are minorities, uh, are slightly less likely to come in on those days. And the problem is there's plenty of evidence for presenteeism bias. So what will happen is the people that come in are more likely to get promoted and you have a diversity crisis. You're saying we have to close the office those two days a week? Well, you don't have to close it. I think it's essential that management takes a lead. My solution is, look, do something super boring, which is, you know, plain vanilla 3-2 hybrid. Uh, have them come into the office, let's say Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, work from home Wednesday, Friday, Try that out for six or seven months. And at the end of the year, November, December, collect data, survey the whole company, set up focus groups, and come up with a new longer run plan.
0: I think this is the most important tip that comes out of your research is I work with so many leaders who are heavy on opinion, but light on data. And they're rushing in to make commitments about what the next year or two or five are going to look like without having any clue. How do people feel about hybrid? What's going to work for them? and I think what you're calling on us to do is to think more like scientists and say, before making a premature commitment, run a series of experiments and then track the effects and learn. You would never launch a product without A-B testing it. Why are you rolling out an office plan and a a structure and a culture to hopefully work for people without doing that same disciplined A-B testing?
2: And one of the reasons to collect data is to highlight that CEOs, in the case of work from home, the demographic of those folks tends to be pretty much in favor of return to office if you look in our survey data. So it's kind of risky for one or two senior folks to make a decision based on the whole company because you could easily get it wrong. I think for leaders, it's a good idea to poll your members anonymous, get a sense of what people want. You don't have to like, you know, follow what they want to do, but at least you're informed before you make a decision. And importantly, you can defend it. Hybrid
0: work is a global experiment for 2022, much like the remote experiment of 2020 that none of us opted into. So what hypotheses do you wanna test about how to make hybrid collaboration work? What should you put in your Petri dish? And what kinds of mistakes might spoil the whole experiment? More on that after the break. Okay, this is gonna be a different kind of ad. I play a personal role in selecting the sponsors for this podcast because they all have interesting cultures of their own. Today, we're going inside the workplace at ServiceNow.
1: That was my first job. Imagine a 16-year-old Asian boy on a big combine harvester, going about five miles per hour. Growing up in small-town Oregon, Abraham Jin started his career harvesting peas. It taught him an important life lesson. It only lasted for two weeks because I constantly clogged the system. And I guess what I realized is that if you wanna do some big work, you can't go too fast. It does take some time. so in that sense, I think that's a good learning that I (laughs) got.
0: Abraham is putting that lesson into practice in a big way. He works as a senior diversity and inclusion manager at ServiceNow, a software company that helps digitize and unify organizations so they can make work flow. His team has partnered with Praxis Labs
1: to test how technology can build empathy. You basically are entered into a a virtual scenario where you're put into vulnerable situations where you're either receiving bias or you're a bystander towards certain type of prejudices and you're given opportunities to make a choice. One simulation
0: is a job interview where you play two different roles. First, you're a job candidate and you're being discriminated against
1: and they'll say different things that basically doesn't allow me to feel safe to show and fully be myself. On the other side, I become a recruiter in that same scenario, watching this whole scenario happen, and I have a choice now to either address that or to let it pass.
0: Research reveals that if you want to build empathy, being immersed in virtual reality is more effective than simply imagining or hearing another person's perspective. And for Abraham's team at ServiceNow and their partners, virtual reality has made the training process itself more empathetic.
1: Typically in normal you know, perspective taking or even empathy building, like you would have to get someone of a marginalized background, re-traumatize them, <laughs> have them share about their toughest issues so that everyone else can learn. And that's really hard to put that burden upon them. But now you're able to leverage technology to kind of allow yourself to enter into the shoes of that person and literally have like visceral, like shifts and changes within you where you're feeling frustration, you're feeling that anger, you're feeling all these things. And now it's building memories as if it's your own, right? The VR learning didn't just elicit emotions for myself and just keep it there. It It allowed me to have opportunities to take action. Abraham hopes to chart a path toward a
0: world in which everyone has a fair chance to achieve.
1: Overall, as we've started this project, people have communicated that they've increased their empathy. They've also communicated they have a greater confidence in taking action. And in the short amount of time that we can be able to train people in, it, it brings the greatest effectiveness to, to scaling it within uh, an organization.
0: And this is only the beginning for ServiceNow.
1: We're continuing to work with great VR and AR partners to help pilot and engage in strategy and implementation. And uh, the work that we're doing with DNI is so important. How people feel how they belong. It, it really impacts how people engage. And if we can have these powerful tools to increase the effectiveness of it, then we definitely want to lean in. Every day,
0: ServiceNow provides businesses with digital solutions that make the world work better. Find out more about ServiceNow's commitment to creating a truly equitable workplace at ServiceNow.com slash DEI. The world works with ServiceNow. Okay, you're a leader or manager, and you've started testing three days on site, two days anywhere. You're collecting data. Woohoo! But that doesn't mean it will be easy.
3: Hybrid is much more complicated. It requires intentional planning, intentional leadership, intentionally building the right technologies, norms, and processes.
0: Sadal Neely is an expert on work and technology at Harvard Business School. She's been studying virtual teams and collaboration for decades. And she has some guidance for hybrid workplaces. Think of it as a pair of safety goggles to protect you from toxic fumes, like...
3: I am sitting at my desk, staring at a screen all day, feeling extremely resentful. After now, I've done a two-hour commute. Why am I here?
0: A good lab has clear guidelines.
3: The reality is that we need to have design principles that helps us determine when in-person work is necessary, because the office should no longer be a destination. It should be a tool. Digital tools should not just be regarded as technology, it should be regarded as a place for community as well. So we need to invent the future that we want using the office as a tool, using technology as a place and trusting people uh, to be able to give us what we want and need.
0: I love the vision of the office as a tool and the digital space as a place. With that vision in mind, we can set out to use each tool for what it's best for, like the office for building community and culture and the digital space for reflection and deep work.
3: We see some companies say, we're going to get together once per quarter to spend together two or three days in retreat format, where we're going to spend half of our time bonding and connecting as a team, buzzing around in that way, and then aligning around goals. And then we'll go in our separate ways. I've seen other organizations where they've said, we want people in five days a month, which is uh, five days that are coordinated. You have to have anchor days where everyone shows up at the same time. And when we're together on those days, we're going to have these types of activities.
0: But using in-person and remote spaces effectively is not as straightforward as it seems.
3: Leaders have to level up. The reality is, to me, the in-person culture that leaders were accustomed to It's more like the theater culture. We're all in the same place. I walk in, I use my physicality to convey all these things. Today, we're kind of in the world of television, right? And as soon as people understand what it means to lead an organization where you can easily be out of sight, out of sync and out of touch, they would do very different things.
0: So what do you need to do to lead and collaborate effectively in a hybrid world? Sadal has a few key ideas starting with one for managers.
3: Number one, people need to feel your digital presence and your physical presence as well.
0: That means over-communicating. Some leaders are doing a weekly video update to keep people in the loop on what they're thinking. Others are holding daily office hours to find out how people are feeling.
3: Leaders have to develop emotional trust. People have to believe that leaders see them, that they care about their difficulties, that they care about their preferences, that they care about their careers and career development. And you have to be able to convey all of those things through your actions and your deeds.
0: What are the most novel examples you've seen of of leaders accomplishing those goals in this uh, virtual-slash-hybrid world?
3: You know, it's interesting. It's holding meetings, for example, and at the end of a 60-minute meeting to say, you know what, I'm going to hang out for overtime for the next 10, 15 minutes after our meeting. Anyone who wants to hang out and talk to me, I'll be right here. Another thing that is so powerful and important is called structuring unstructured time. We live in a world where people take 60 minutes for a meeting and fill the entire 60 minutes on agenda items. In this kind of virtual environment, hybrid environment, you actually need to spend six to seven minutes, oftentimes 10% of the time, checking in with people. It could be something as simple as, I want everyone to chat in how you're doing today. So you built in all of these moments intentionally. And people come to trust you, have confidence in each other.
0: The second step is to be clear about norms for virtual interaction. Like building in alerts for people once they've dominated 30% of the conversation. Agreeing on times when it's okay to have cameras off. Or fostering a lively chat channel to bring quieter voices into the discussion
3: what people have to realize is that you have to be very explicit around the rules of engagement in these hybrid gatherings. How do we communicate? How do we make sure that every person can contribute? And we need to make sure that our turn-taking is carefully thought through. So some people have to dial up, some people have to dial down. And a leader's responsibility is to hold an inclusive meeting each and every time.
0: When you talk about the rules of engagement, you're reminding me of something that I found extremely valuable when I taught virtually for the first time. So I was teaching with with Nancy Rothbard and Sigal Barstate and, and Samir No Mohammed, and we said, like, we've gotta we have 80 students at a time in a section. We need to get their voices in. How do we make sure that everyone's included? And we decided that we would use the chat window instead of the raise hand feature, we would give them hashtags. So we had, if you have a question, put in hashtag question and you can type it out or we'll just see that you have a question and we'll call on you. We did hashtag debate. If you want to challenge something that I've said or one of your classmates has said, we did hashtag on fire, which was a Seagal invention. If you have a burning question or burning comment and you have to get in now, if I see on fire, I will literally stop in mid-sentence, floor is yours. And that way you can, you can make your very timely point. And then (laughs) the students added hashtag aha. When they had a light bulb moment, which was so valuable because I was able to track, is the learning happening in real time? And I have to tell you, I had the deepest, richest conversations I've ever had in the classroom because instead of calling on the random hand that happened to be waving, I was able to choreograph. I could see who had a relevant point to make, who had a question that would, you know, that would complicate our thinking, who was going to challenge and enrich the conversation. And look, I... I miss the energy of the live classroom during that, right? I felt like I was in a black hole and we were violating the first law of thermodynamics. I'm like, I'm putting a lot of energy in, but less is coming back. That's supposed to be physically impossible. And I was thrilled to have the energy back once we came back in the classroom. I miss the rules of engagement of the chat. It seems like something that every work team could be doing in a hybrid world.
3: I wish I knew about this when I was teaching remotely, but I'll be using it in the future. (laughs) Brilliant, right? What does remote give us? Remote gives us a second channel of communication. And the chat is a powerful way to actually not only orchestrate, but to communicate. At the end of the day, what I think is going to be so important for all of us is to be multimodal workers.
0: This is Sedal's third point for hybrid. We need to be multimodal to toggle between multiple channels to communicate.
3: We're in hybrid format, and this requires us to use different skills, different ways of conveying uh, information no matter what. This is kind of the world we're in today. It's not one is better than the other. We need to be phenomenal multimodal workers. This is what this time calls for.
0: That's such an insightful point. Multimodal is exactly what we need to be. One of the dynamics that jumped out at me as I was using the chat actively is it helped introverts get an equal place in the discussion, which tracks with evidence that remote interaction can enable introverts to be heard. I also noticed that the chat prioritized the quality and clarity of thought over the charisma and confidence that was behind it. Is that a shift we're going to see in a hybrid workplace?
3: You know, many people talk about the extent to which this new way of working hybrid and even remote is democratizing. And what you're talking about is the quality of people's input and comments and contributions are much more visible to us in a more democratic way. We see this in terms of diversity across gender differences and those with diverse uh, perspectives or backgrounds that might get drowned out otherwise. The other thing that has been very compelling to me is the findings from the Future Forum, Slack's think tank, how when they quarterly, they survey about 10,000 workers, and started to see that black and brown professionals disproportionately prefer remote or hybrid work. In fact, to the tune of about 97%. And why is that? People say that they no longer have to take the psychological commute in order to feel included. They no longer have to deal with microaggressions that comes in many forms, and the code switching that people have to do. And women feel the same way. And if we use all of the tools that are available to us, I think we're going to have more diverse and more inclusive places.
0: That's such an important shift. And I think what you're surfacing here is that we can't just say Well, some some people who have been historically marginalized are going to have a better experience online. So we'll let them be virtual more and then deprive them of the opportunities for FaceTime and engagement on site. We actually need to rethink the office itself.
3: Exactly. Exactly. It, the solution to this is not to say all people of color, black and brown professionals from now on are remote. That's the wrong thing to do. But to understand what this reveals and how can we use the various tools that we have today in order to have more diversity, more representation and more inclusion.
0: So how do we do that in a hybrid world? What does that look like?
3: The first thing is that is so powerful is to actually explicitly do a relaunch, meaning together communicate and talk about the desired norms and goals that people have, the resources that are available to people.
0: That's the fourth recommendation. Do a relaunch. Think about your reentry process. What conversations have you had about how you want to interact Here's some discussions that need to happen.
3: How are we gonna
2: handle different time zones?
3: What are we gonna do to accommodate people on, say, different continents? The best practice around that is to share the inconvenience. To truly understand that you have a globally or a distributed team, you have to together come up with norms such that you're sharing the inconvenience. People's locations should in no way be used against them. And you cannot have certain members of any group disproportionately being burdened by the time zone difference.
1: When we're on site, how will we build connection and community? Are we getting together once a week for lunch? No agenda? What about virtual days? Are there times we'll agree to be reachable? And uh, what kind of information should we communicate face-to-face versus digitally?
0: Many people are sending simple information remotely and saving complex information for in-person meetings. Not so fast.
3: If you have Um, complex information processing, you actually want asynchronous because you want the delay for people to absorb that information. Yes. Yes. You need that. In the absence of that, guess what? You're going to have two, three, four meetings before you arrive at mutual understanding. This is unequivocal.
0: It's so counterintuitive to people. The idea that like, I think generally people assume the more complex the issue is, the more critical it is for us to gather in person in the same room. And you're saying no,
3: no, absolutely no. It's inefficient. You're going to need so much more time together and meetings to arrive at a place. So you need what's called delayed time for people to be able to process that complex information.
0: And that's a big part of why Amazon loves the structured memos where people sit down and digest, here's the decision we have to make, here are the different options and their pros and cons before they start talking. Okay, this makes a ton of sense. So what does a bad relaunch look like?
3: The bad ones, or the less effective ones, I think have been uh, those where you have the mixed messages, where leaders are conflicted.
0: That's the fifth recommendation. Don't send mixed messages. By now, it should be clear that in-person isn't superior to remote. It's better for some tasks and worse for others. But you've probably seen leaders deliver mixed messages. You know, on the days when everyone is on-site, the boss raves about how much better it is.
3: Oh, I'm so glad we're together in person. I just couldn't stand all the Zoom Zoom we've been doing. That's mixed signals. So what happens the next time people see that there's a contradiction
0: when you talk about these mixed messages, it reminds me of a, a Voss Cable and Voss paper on organizational identity and professional theaters. And the the takeaway that I that really stuck for me with that paper was you had like professional theaters with very different identities and goals, right? So some said we're we're about creating art. Others said we're here to make money. Others said we want to serve the community. All of those models were effective as long as leaders were on the same page about them. And where they ran into trouble was a theater where multiple leaders did not agree on who we are. And it sounds like you're, you're landing in a similar place around hybrid, that there's not a right model, but it's important for leaders to be aligned on what the model is going to be for their organization.
3: A hundred percent. Wow. I love that study. This is the phenomenon that we're seeing today. And once an organization makes a decision, whatever that may be, remote first, hybrid, in-person, whatever their decision is, I would love to see every member of that leadership team commit to it, embrace it, and move forward with it. Otherwise, the confusion will play out inside of that workforce.
0: It's easy to see how a lot of the recommendations you give apply to knowledge work. What about manufacturing? What about more traditionally blue-collar as opposed to white-collar work, where there might not even be a quote-unquote office, but there's a physical plant? How do you think about hybrid work there?
3: This is one of the most vexing aspects of this difficult and stubborn issue. And here's what I've seen people do that's been incredibly effective. It's to give individuals who are physically tied to buildings and spaces, manufacturing, some members of IT organizations, etc., to make sure that they are able to get what I call remote learning days, meaning give people free 10, 15 remote days out of the year so that they're able to use that to learn and to upskill and also experience the flexibility that everyone else is experiencing.
0: Yes! I love that. What a great idea.
3: And it works. It's magical.
0: I, I could see so many workplaces saying, OK, we're going to do anchor days. We're going to do retreats. And what I love about that is it creates variety in not just in the work day, but also in the work week and the work month. I, I, could, I could imagine 2030 office space, new edition. What the hell is the case in the Mondays? Every Monday is different. Why? Why would I hate Mondays? <laughs>
3: You would never hate Mondays.
0: Next week on Work Life.
3: The weirdest finding was that not only did people say they were more embarrassed, they actually endorsed more stereotypes that related to disability.
0: Designing workplaces that benefit both people with disabilities and those without. Work Life is hosted by me, Adam Grant. The show is produced by Ted with Transmitter Media. Our team includes Colin Helms, Greta Cohn, Dan O'Donnell, Joanne DeLuna, Grace Rubenstein, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Cheng, and Anna Phelan. This episode was produced by Constanza Gallardo. Our show is mixed by Ben Shano. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hans Dale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Ad Stories produced by Pineapple Street Studios. Special thanks to our sponsors LinkedIn. Morgan Stanley, ServiceNow, and UKG. For their research, gratitude to Zanny Voss, Dan Cable, and Glenn Voss on organizational identity, Lynn Van Dyne and colleagues on interdependence, Nancy Katz on sports teams at work, and Alexander Dennis and colleagues on introverts in virtual teams. When we first met, you were studying global teams and looking at language barriers and, and faux pas. And faux pas, what is the plural of faux pas? (laughs) Faux pas en
3: français. Yeah, it's good, it's good, it's good. (laughs)
0: Solamente hablo espanol, lo
1: siento.